Welcome to the Federal Executive Forum Series on Federal News Network. Here's your host, Luke McCormack. Good afternoon and welcome to the Federal Executive Forum celebrating 17 years of profiling excellence in government IT mission programs. I'm Luke McCormack. During today's show, we will discuss critical issues facing government and industry leaders in rolling out the Zero Trust architecture. With me on today's show are Scott Davis, Chief Information Security Officer, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Bo Hauser, Chief Information Security Officer, U.S. Census Bureau, Jeff Reichardt, Vice President, Public Sector Strategy, Veeam Government Solutions, Chris Roberts, Chief Technology Officer, Quest Software, Akiba Saidi, Vice President, IBM Security Federal. We're talking about zero trust architecture, and we know this is a journey. Scott, we're going to start with you. Welcome to your appointment. I know you were acting for quite some time. You've been in that role. Fairly new to the role. A lot of moving parts over there at CBP. Talk to us about your zero trust architecture journey. All right. Well, good morning. Thank you, uh, Luke. Thanks, Tom, for the invitation. Um, so I'll back up a little bit. We uh, worked on a cybersecurity strategy that was published in March of uh, 2022. It's our strategy for uh, cybersecurity for CBP for 2022, FY22 through 24. So it gives us three years, and that lines up with the OMB memo for implementation of zero trust architecture. And fortunately, my CIO was having us lean forward in some of the things that the zero trust architecture incorporates. For example, there's the identity pillar. We had already looked at centralization of our identity capabilities and our platform within the cybersecurity directorate that I'm now honored to manage. Uh, so within that, that offering, we've got uh, privileged account management, role management, and then authorization. So we've now incorporated about 150 applications and over 750, nearly 800 unique URLs. So that gives us simplified sign-on or single sign-on. It gives us uh, multi-factor authentication as well as uh, phishing resistant. Uh, we also incorporate login.gov. So that's our, for our public facing applications that uh, folks may be familiar with like Trusted Traveler. Another area is the network pillar. We're uh, one of the areas that's been uh, putting in demonstrations and, and pilots of the Trusted Internet Connection 3.0. So we had Trusted Internet Connection 2.0. We're working towards 3.0, which will give us a lot of different capabilities. We also have an offering where we're working on net network micro segmentation. So to uh, give us the ability to reduce the blast radius, if something, hopefully not, goes wrong, we'll be able to make, it, make sure that that segment is shunted off improves our ability to respond and recover and minimize any damaging effects so that it doesn't go across laterally across. Uh, we have a project plan. We did a gap analysis for across all of the zero trust architecture. Uh, we'll be briefing senior leadership. I have a briefing that I'm going to be giving to our CIO and well, as well as our deputy CIOs across all pillars. I did that gap analysis to make sure people had a one uh, understanding of what zero trust architecture means and then finding out where we stand within CDP already and then putting projects together to roll out to make sure that we hit that FY24 deadline. So those are some of the things that we've got going in within CBP. It sounds like you all are really on a tear there. And I know Sonny is very aggressive and posturing a nice lineup on the, uh, on the budget. I think that's great. And it appears that a lot of folks are really uh, making sure that the identity management piece is uh, first and foremost. Bo, how about over at U.S. Census Bureau? I know you've been on this, this same journey ever since, well, quite frankly, before the OMB guidance came out. 
Right. Yeah, we, we did a lot of uh, preparation for the 2020 census, and that really kind of put us on this path. So we, we were well placed when the guidance came out, but it, it was still a struggle for us. And it's a big shift for a lot of, you know, sort of traditional IT folks. And so it, we, we kind of struggled through that. We gained a pretty good understanding of sort of, you know, the pillars on the left, which is the um, identity and the device and the session uh, elements of, of the, the requester, right? The requester coming in to, to access something. Uh, we, we understood how that was gonna change using SASE as that connection point, as opposed to VPN, and then unlocking the attributes that we could then use however we wanted to sort of build that trust, right? The identity attributes that Scott talked about, the device attributes, right? And even to the point of device identity using something like a certificate, right? And then the session, is this, is this request coming from the location we expect it from? Those kinds of things. So that gives us a lot of tools in our toolbox that we didn't have before. Where we were struggling is internally, right? At the application layer, mm -hmm. how do we, um, dial up or dial down the functionality of the application based on trust, right? A lower level of trust gets a, a less you know, interactive experience, right? Maybe a lower level gets read only, whereas a higher level of trust gets the full experience, right? So how do we do that? And then how do we also keep our internal applications hidden from the internet when we know we have to use that internet and the TIC 3.0 that Scott mentioned for that access, right? Everything sort of works through the internet under a zero trust model. And we found out that the application proxy capability is where we're, where we're gonna focus, right? And so that's where we're at now. How do we really leverage an application proxy to keep, your, keep it hidden from the internet, but also accessible uh, for an internal um, application? And then how do we dial up and dial up functionality based on trust level? Um, many LAFs today have application proxy, but where we started was the traditional, you know, let's set up a VPN, let's get our border firewall ready. And, and we really had to kind of take a step back and say, no, 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 let's try something different. Let's, let's use a WAF, let's use an application proxy. Let's really leverage the power of the cloud for the TIC 3.0 capabilities. So that's a little bit about our journey. It's, it's certainly interesting and, and uh, folks are on board, but it, it really takes a lot to, to kind of get folks in line. Sure. And, and again, it's, it's a journey. And while you're laying down this architecture, you really do have an opportunity to reimagine a lot of these things as you're rolling out this capability. Jeff, um, well, before we even begin, why don't I know there's a lot of people that know what Veeam is, government solutions, but perhaps there's not everyone. So why don't you first describe what is Veeam? How do they uh, sort of play in this space? And absolutely. then tell us about the state of the state of what you're seeing from your vantage point. Yep, absolutely. So for those of you who are not familiar with Veeam, we are a leading enterprise data management and backup company. Uh, folks that do know Veeam might know us because we've led in backing up virtual machines for quite a while, but we also back up workloads and protect data on workloads, uh, all kinds of virtualized platforms on-prem, in the cloud, et cetera. We have a lot of conversations these days that center around zero trust with our customers. In particular, uh, as you might expect, Luke, based on what I just said, the data pillar of zero trust architecture, uh, that's something that folks know they need to consider. 
But I was interested in, in something that Scott said when he talked about the micro-segmentation initiatives that are going on right now at uh, Customs and Border Protection and, and how they want to limit the blast radius of any attack that happens. That is basically exactly the same language that we use when we talk with federal agencies about the way they're protecting their data and the resiliency that they need to build in so that if the worst takes place, if an attack is successful, they can always recover. And I'll, I'll be adding today as we go through the talk some stats from Veeam's research. We actually do uh, the most comprehensive data protection research done by any organization, including industry analyst firms like Forrester or ESG or Gartner. And we do it for two reasons. We do it to inform what, what we do with our products, right, to find out what folks need, what challenges they're facing. But we also do it to arm our customers for conversations with their leadership so that they know, hey, this is a, this is a, a common issue that we are having and that other organizations or agencies like us are having. So I'll be adding some of those as we go through the talk today, too. Sure. And uh, appreciate you uh, laying the groundwork and describing uh, how you all fit into this apparatus. Chris, how about a Quest software? Most people know what Quest software is. I'll give you the opportunity to describe that if you feel like you need to. But more importantly, tell us about sort of what are you seeing from the vantage point at Quest Software? Sure, Quest, we've been focused on the identity space for quite some time. Um, we're Gartner recognized. We're deployed across probably 90% of the federal government in some way, shape or form. So I won't call out the agencies on the line today, but we're in those data centers as well. The point really is that those solutions are on a maturity path to achieving and helping achieve zero trust across the, our federal partners. So when you think of identity, quite frankly, we, we often take it for granted. We, we think of it as a username password sometimes, simplistically. Um, but quite frankly, it's the thing that creates our uniqueness um, on the planet. When I walk, my face tells me who I am. Uh, my fingerprints when I enter the, the country tells CBP who I am, for instance. So it's that person, place, or thing identification for all of our systems and objects that we critically need. Um, we focus not just on the identity piece, but also the plumbing. Um, the plumbing that we take for granted usually is are things like LDAP directories, primarily Active Directory. Most of the really significant breaches we've had involve a compromised credential that started with Active Directory. So someone compromised a, an attack path, they figured out exactly a, a vulnerable service account or, or God forbid, an actual end user with admin privileges and were able to laterally move across an organization. The idea around zero trust or least privilege, as I grew up knowing it, quite frankly, was to really stop that type of activity. So we focus in on the nodes, the users, the data, but now more importantly, even the APIs, because we know that there are applications that have APIs embedded that they make calls to different services outside of the organization, for instance, on the public internet, for instance, that basically can serve as an entry point for malware, for ransomware, or worst case scenario, a threat actor to actually gain control of an enterprise. So those are the things we actually focus on and our solutions are broad in that category, but identity now we found out quite frankly is literally the next perimeter. So the moat is gone, so to speak. No question about it. And identity becomes such a key piece of that. No question that these uh, bad actors have used that playbook over and over. And it's pretty frightening when you start thinking about machine to machine identity management. So I uh, appreciate all the work that Quest is doing there at Kiva. How about at IBM? A lot of different moving parts there. You all have such a, a broad viewpoint. Uh, tell us what you're seeing from, uh, from the vantage point of IBM. Yeah, sure. So I think um, one thing, well, we're seeing progress. There's no question about that uh, when it comes to zero trust. It is still very 
very much the focus, very much a top of mind for a lot of organizations. Um, but we are seeing progress. I think uh, over the summer we had a report just to give some statistics, and then I'll kind of give more of some anecdotes that I that I've just been seeing based on engagement within the industry and clients. Um, so over the summer we produce uh, every year. This is our 17th year cost of a data breach, and and last year was the first year we actually started to measure implementations of zero trust. And the movement was from 35% of organizations identifying as deploying zero trust architectures up to 41% this year. And we were also able to measure an overall cost savings of those that are implementing zero trust implementations, you know, a million dollars uh, and slightly above. So there is some measurable progress and that's across, that's a study of 550 breaches around the world. So that's a bit of a global statement of what I just described. I think there's definitely progress on agreeing on the definitions. I think there was a lot of chaos and confusion about, mm -hmm. you know, single vendor implementations or, uh, you know, deploy this and you've got your zero trust push, you know, magic. Push yeah, button magic. architecture. There is absolutely no magic button in uh, in zero trust. And I think mm -hmm. you use the word that I'm now more consistently hearing everyone reflect, which is it's a journey. DOD just came out, you know, in the last few months talking about getting to a zero trust architecture by 2027. That's a journey, right? And they've been on it already for a period of time. And, and so in terms of some of the progress, I'll say too, just within industry and collaboration, I think we've also come to the point where I think it's really well recognized now. This is a multi-vendor, multi, multi <clears throat> um, uh, uh, very multifaceted environment. There's a lot of legacy in federal. There's no single vendor that's going to be the single answer when it comes to zero trust. We've tried to focus a lot on strategy roadmap prioritization, journey from where you are to where you need to get to. Mm -hmm. um, some of the work that we're doing, for example, with NIST. So NIST has stood up a center of excellence specifically around zero trust, exactly to the point of multi-vendor environment. And so there has been some progress in the last couple of months uh, on actually across the 25 vendors that are involved there, getting four different environments stood up with multi-vendor environments, starting to do some integration scenarios. The first draft is now available uh, for, for the public to review where they'll be publishing guidance on those multi-vendor environments, best practices of integration, configurations that make sense. And that reflects, I think, reality. And that's a good piece of progress that there's more guidance coming. I know DOD is also about to publish an updated strategy as well. And they've been collaborating with industry. So that's been a really positive, I think, from, from our perspective. Um, but shortly, we'll hear a new strategy of, you know, seven pillars and, and a variety of capabilities and maturity mapped across those seven pillars um, and an evolution in their strategy. So it is a journey. We are seeing progress. We are definitely continuing to engage. I was at the Forrester Security Summit last week. Zero Trust was all over the agenda continuously, right? It was in all the keynotes. There was a dedicated track around Zero Trust, right? It couldn't take, and there was an awful lot. It was in, in Crystal City, a lot of government folks that were there. Um, so it continues to be really a top of mind priority across the board. So no, no, no question about it. And uh, we're going to roll over and start talking about specific solutions. Jeff, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you're in, in a, uh, a, a, a an opportunity there. You're you're in a position <laughs> to see a lot of various implementations of activity across the government. Give us an example of one you'd like to highlight. So what I'd like to do, rather than talking uh, a lot about uh, Veeam customers, because we have a lot, is talk about sure. st statistically uh, what what we have seen in terms of, of data attacks on data in the federal space. And so we did we did a survey that uh, was released back in February. Thirty four hundred organizations worldwide, uh, statistically significant percentage were public sector and federal, so we could extrapolate good data from that. 
what we found was very interesting that when we asked the question, what was the most frequent cause of outage that you had last year? And what was the most significant outage that you had last year? For every sector, public sector and everyone else, the most significant outage that anyone had was caused by a cyber attack. It was not caused by application misconfiguration. It was not caused by network or storage failure or anything like that. It was caused by a cyber attack. For our federal customers, that was also the most frequent cause of outages. And that was very different on the federal side versus other, versus other demographics. So when we have conversations with our federal customers and, and the ones, the agencies that we've seen that have had success have taken very seriously um, the idea that they need to protect their data in such a way. Chris said a few minutes ago, the mode is gone. And I think we're all clear about that, right? There's no wall protecting our data. We have to, uh, as Veeam's Chief Information Security Officer, Gil Vega says, assume a state of constant breach. So if we assume that the adversary is already on the network, that he's escalated some credentials, we have to put resiliency in place that'll protect our backups if, you know, in the conversations that we have with customers against even an adversary with, with uh, elevated admin credentials. And so where we have seen customers doing that successfully, they've taken very seriously the idea that they need to have immutability or an air gap solution for their data protection. And that, you know, there are a lot of agencies with large data volumes that rely on tape for backups. Tape can be a good solution in that space if that's something you're relying on. You just have to make sure that it's not um, capable of being attacked by an adversary who's gotten on the network. And obviously there are a lot of great storage and cloud solutions out there too. A lot of great storage and cloud solutions and air gap really critical so that you don't uh, walk the issue from your operating environment over into your backup environment. And I, I exactly. know that uh, a few of us have uh, experienced that type of situation as well. All right, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. Veeam Government Solutions, the leader in data backup, provides highly secure data protection solutions to keep the U.S. federal government running. Agencies trust VGS to protect and manage data, workloads, and applications, no matter where they reside. And over 1,200 government customers know that VGS is a simple, flexible, reliable solution that scales to the cloud with no vendor lock-in. Visit veeamgov.com to learn how VGS can modernize your data protection strategy. That's V-E-E-A-M-Gov.com. With remote work becoming more widespread, traditional practices for protecting identity have proven inadequate. The time is right for government agencies to explore zero trust. Zero trust assumes that traffic inside the network is as likely to be as malicious as traffic outside the network. To protect your network and data, you need advanced automated tools that adhere to the principles of zero trust. Quest Public Sector has the end-to-end solutions you need to implement zero trust in your agency. Learn more at questpublicsector.com. Recent global events have demonstrated urgency for advancing digital transformation and modernizing cybersecurity strategies. While threats continue to increase and skill gaps grow, leaders are tasked with navigating these challenges while complying with government mandates and timelines. IBM can help accelerate zero-trust plans, enhance cybersecurity, and better manage complexity. IBM cybersecurity solutions protect data across the hybrid cloud, secure remote users, and better address risk and compliance. For more information on IBM cybersecurity solutions, go to dlt.com slash government dash product slash IBM. Welcome back to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. We're talking about zero trust architectures. And we're talking specifically about, well, specific programs. And I'd like to throw it over to you, Bo, and give us an example of a, a program you'd like to highlight hmm. uh, where you're using this capability. And uh, it's 
enhancing your uh, your operating environment. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll tell you about the initiative that I'm most interested in. Um, we are collaborating with five statistical agencies from the United Nations, mm. and we're using some open source software called PyGrid. And so this initiative falls under uh, what's called privacy enhancing technologies. That's kind of the domain it falls into. Mm -hmm. And so the promise of the initiative is to figure out a way to um, empower data and maintain the privacy of the data, right? And so the concept is that the participating nations, statistical agencies can send queries and questions and, and other research, research type um, um, activities to each other's data sets and get really valuable answers uh, without compromising that, um, that data set, right? So truly um, truly empowering the data without you know what we do today we have to <clears throat> work out agreements and we have to share data with folks and that's always a slippery slope especially when there's no trust and so how zero trust is helping us is one there's there is no trust here this is a multinational um, collaboration and so you're talking host nation to host nation so you don't have a you don't have the same baseline of trust that that I would have if I were working with Scott at CBP. We're both federal agencies. We have that foundation that doesn't exist here. So it's true zero trust. And so we're able to, um, if we were taking a traditional approach, we would be doing the firewall and the VPN and all these types of things. Right. With the zero trust approach, we're able to, to use policies and um, and attributes at, to to maintain the granular control that we need. Uh, so that we, we can be very surgical with what activities and actions are allowed, right? So it's really a game changer for an initiative like this. And we're still in the pilot phase. We're still using public data, for example. So it hasn't gotten to the point where, um, where we, we've thought about using private data yet, but we're hoping to get to that point soon. Wow, and that, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought of that concept of the, the use of this architecture and these external partners, of which I know that CBP has tens of thousands of those. Um, Akiba, I'm going to come to you and ask you, same question in regards to uh, if you'd like to highlight a specific program that you're seeing an agency work on, perhaps you're working with them or multi-agency. Yeah, I think there's a few good examples, but I think there's, um, I might highlight one from a people perspective and one from a technology perspective. I think, and I, and I, you know, as we were just chatting on the break here, I, I, I've gotten really passionate around this people side of zero trust, because sure. I think in many respects, it is, you know, the people and the cultural changes that have to occur are almost the bigger barriers uh, than the technolo technological barriers uh, to implementing a zero trust roadmap, and we have seen that play out in real time. So we have executed hundreds of workshops. We have dedicated programs um, with a variety of clients, but there's one I have in mind in particular um, that we've run an entire um, sort of end-to-end -end program across their top leadership. Um, and then in, when we think of zero trust in the pillars, the folks that own the applications, that own the data, that own the networks, et cetera, right? And, and going deep into each of those areas. And one of the things that we've been able to achieve there was through the facilitation workshops and other activities, bringing the mission slash business side of the house together on defining what those priorities, objectives, and the roadmap would begin to look like. That mm -hmm. lack of alignment is very often the misstep in the past. Um, zero trust is so, so wide reaching 
the touch from an end user perspective, the fact that users are the front line and that education aspect, that knowledge aspect, and the level of having to take some of that out of their hands, the level of automation and frictionless you know, uh, level of how the technology is implemented is fundamental to making sure we achieve the business objectives. Zero trust is also massive. And so where do you start? It's one of the most common questions. How do we get started? Well, aligning with the business priorities. And so literally in this one program, you know, we've run um, out of 25, 26 different of these types of forcing functions. And some of them were quite painful. Some of them were really painful getting the security team and the business team together. But without that, the progress could not be made. And now it's shifted to a, a more aligned approach, changes in their governance, changes in role definitions. They didn't have RACI across the organizations in terms of where, who picked up what in the event of a breach, as we've been discussing, breach is just assumed at this point. So, so there's a lot of focus on resilient and recover and what do you mm -hmm. do when it happens. There's a lack of governance and process in place to really do that effectively, especially unless they've already been put through a fire, which kind of has forced some organizations to get that more in place than what they had before. So I've seen a real positive impact of, you know, getting that alignment. Um, and, and that is one of the best practices. That is one of the things that we advocate. That is one of the things we had another agency where we were about to engage in a zero trust workshop and, and that CISO said, you know, hey, I want to do one for the business side and I want to do one for the security side. And we said, yeah, that's not that's not the goal. The goal is get get everyone into the common conversation, everyone in the room together. And so that the people side of it, I think, is really fundamental to make sure you are focusing on not just the technology side, which is the natural disposition of most security organizations. Um, on the technology side, I'll say, you know, we've looked at, you know, generally speaking, four broad use cases that, that zero trust implementations are really falling under. And one of the ones that really shot to the top was around remote workforce. And so projects around networking, projects around micro segmentation, projects around um, SASE are some of the, the, um, some of the leading starting points that we've seen uh, where, where things, some things like identity were, were a little bit more mature and in place. And we mm -hmm. started to see this focus on the networking and especially because of the hybrid work model um, that that everyone was forced into, but definitely within the federal government as well. I'm starting to see some of those technologies coming into play and starting to see an uptake in some of those areas as well. Identity, so, uh, a key piece, uh, culture, certainly a, a key piece. Let me go up to Scott. Scott, you have a lot of moving parts over there. You sort of top line them. Do you want to give us an example of one that you want would like to highlight that's really sort of unlocking this capability? Sure. So I, in the first segment, I talked a little bit about identity, and I think we're probably uh, most mature across the pillars of zero trust in our identity uh, capabilities. I'll talk about data. So identity is key to making sure that we have the right people having the right access to the right information at the right time. Mm -hmm. well, it's that data that's the key piece of that. We have to have that data strategy, data tagging, uh, understanding what the data is and who should access it and when. So. Uh, one thing I want to make clear, a lot of folks may not understand this, but as the CISO, zero trust is not only me. This is literally a, an all hands on deck type thing for mm -hmm. OIT, information technology organizations. And then the, the business side of it, the, the people side of it, CBP isn't a bunch of IT people. We have Border Patrol agents. We have Air and Marine operations. We have a bunch of different people who are non-IT. So having an understanding of what their data is and is it law enforcement sensitive? Is it FOUO? Is it... Uh, PII, personally identifiable information, and then who should access it and when. So our, our chief technology officer, he's multi-hatted like a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. He is also our, our acting chief data officer. 
he put out a, a data strategy just a couple months ago. So that's going to help us guide our implementation for that data pillar within Zero Trust. And then fortunately, he's going to be able to take one of those hats off. He's going to be uh, hiring a chief data officer, hopefully the announcements uh, in the next couple of weeks. Okay. And so that, will, that person will be charged with getting that data strategy implemented. How do we work across all of IT to make sure whether it's the network piece, the identity piece, applications, workflow, workforce, um, the cultural piece, that's one of the key areas that we're going to have. So I think really within all of the pillars are very important, but I look at the identity and the data pieces are critical to make sure that we get it right. And I think with the, the activity that we're doing within CBP, we're going to be well on that path for the data pillar. Right. You, you, you point out again, the, the culture and also there's various layers. It's not as simple as sort of, uh, you know, secret, top secret and, and unclassified. A lot of different nuances there that are super important. Really do appreciate that. Chris, how about at Quest? Can you give us an example of a program you'd like to highlight? Sure. I'm going to actually going to feed off of something that uh, Akiba and Scott just hit it on. And that is you cannot separate Zero Trust based on where someone sits in an organization. So, yes, there's a heavy technical bent to Zero Trust, but there's a significant business or operation side of it, too, as well. And one of the challenges we've discovered in trying to deploy and help customers build a zero trust deployment, not just an architecture, but an actual deployment, is this notion of silos. And that is for years, people have had command and control of who access what in their in their environments, in their domains. So for instance, the servers, quote unquote, or the workstations or the applications that were driving their particular agency mission or that particular chief, for instance, he, they controlled that kingdom, for instance. And so once again, they had a moat, so to speak, around their infrastructure, around their data. Zero trust means that I now have to collaborate across not just my inner my agency, but interagency and across the government, for instance, and in, and in the private sector, it's even worse. So you think of what we take for granted when we order something in our Amazon cart, just how many services have to be authorized across them to even access, for instance, my credit card and simple things like that. You take that to an agency. Well, how do you now remove those silos or those command and control centers of you know control? from a particular chief. And that means that there's gonna be some wrangling or negotiating, or I would say brinksmanship negotiating some time to get that control away. And the, the, the projects we've been involved with, both at you know, Air Force, Marine Corps, we just got awarded at State Department, was to first understand who's actually controlling those domains. So if you have an LDAT director like Active Directory or other services, for instance, well, how do you now wrestle control of that away from someone? The key is to help them understand is like, it's not about control, it's about serviceability. How are you delivering your service? How are you meeting your mission objectives, for instance? And I think too much of the security bend has been around who grants access? Where is that access granted? And that makes for a very significant hurdle when it comes to overcoming those silos. So the first step I've seen is consolidation of those directories, consolidation of those silos. So basically from a disparate model to a more centralized model. And then that gives you the ability to now take a step back and actually look at your kingdom, so to speak. We can come back to this kingdom and moat thing, but I'm sorry. We, to step back and look at it from the standpoint, okay, now who really should be doing what, for instance? you know, If you just have a simple application that just works on one specific thing, for instance, really, do you need domain access privileges across the entire organization? And every time we've seen a breach that, you know, Jeff hinted at it, cyber breaches, when they happen, 
it happens because there is access granted to someone who shouldn't be in your organization. And if they can move laterally, and the best way to move laterally is to get access to some admin or super user provisions or credentials. So for us, we try to figure out exactly one, who's got the keys on the Windows side, the Linux side, for instance, and then other operating environments and consolidate those things to the point where a CISO can now step back and say, now, based on who you are and what you do, I can now determine exactly what level of zero trust or least privilege you should actually have. And then I can also determine things like impossible travel from that information because we used to never know where people actually were. So when we do all these things mm -hmm. in concert and consolidate these efforts, you get across the issue of execution. And once we can help um, our agency partners develop a better execution model, zero trust becomes something that everyone can live with. Everyone can point to and says, yeah, it's actually working for me versus it being a struggle for control within the organization. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to pivot over to priorities. Akiba, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what are the priorities? What's the demand signal that you're getting these days in regards to where the focus is? Um, I think the moving into, so obviously everyone is in a different state in their journey, right? Depending on, you know, uh, as we've heard today, you know, Scott talked about, hey, we were pretty mature in identity. So they focus on some of those. Everybody's sort of in a different spot there. But I think we are beginning. There was an awful lot, I would say, earlier on about just what is it? What do we do? How do we define it, et cetera? Now, I think we've got a much more defined thought process um, by most organizations, mm -hmm. but there is still not yet the really moving forward on a number of projects. There was not funding that came with all the mandates, right? right. So <laughs> that's a big piece of, of some of the things that we've been talking about in, in amongst um, right. you know, some of the community that really 2024 is going to be the first time you can actually write into your budgets and plan mm -hmm. ahead in some of these areas. So moving into from prioritization, which I still think is going on, down to true execution of projects and actually lining up, um, you know, behind those projects and starting to write budget, you know, into 2024 will start to give us some visibility as well. It is still quite early on the journey. I think we are still early on this overall journey, um, but there is a lot more maturity, I think, at least in the the um, the way people are thinking about it and the organization around it. And so the priority I think in 2023 is to continue to, towards that that maturity and to continue sort of on the education levels to, to get people there <laughs> in terms of how to best achieve and, and pick, a, pick, pick the focus areas. And sure, uh, no question. I mean, uh, let's face it, it was a, an unfunded mandate as many of these things are in the yeah. beginning. Now you'll start to see it laid down in these uh, in these budget allocations. Scott, how about over at CBP? Uh, focus on, uh, what is the focus on the, the top priorities at this point? Sure, so Akiba hit on one of them, and that's the budget, and we just talked about it a little bit. Uh, I've, I've talked about Again, how, nice move to align to the budget, right? Really makes sense. <laughs> yes, sir. So I've, I've been saying zero budget equals zero, zero trust. That's the way things go. If we don't have anything to put towards these efforts, it's going to make it very, very difficult, to, especially to hit 2024 for the deadline. Mm -hmm. uh, so then I've also been talking about for our goalposts that we have to hit between now and 2024, are we going to check the box? Not that we're box checkers, but are we going to check the box with a pencil or are we going to check it with a Sharpie? Mm. And I mentioned the identity pillar. I think we're checking that one or on our way towards checking that with a Sharpie. The other ones we're working towards, I know we will have... Um, solid checks. We'll get the milestones met. But 2024, the deadline, I've been talking about with our senior leadership, that's not even the end goal. 
this is going to continue to evolve. As was mentioned earlier, DOD is looking at 2027. Even 2027, we're going to continue to evolve what is zero trust, what it means. If you think back even five years ago, not everybody, not every employee within CBP had a smartphone of their own. Now think about what everybody has in their hands, the capability, and then protection for that. Fortunately, the cultural piece, the education piece, some of that's being done for us in an unfortunate way. People are now aware of identity theft, breaches in their, of their public information. So they're worried about it on their personal side that carries over into our government side, our workforce side. Mm -hmm. Because of that awareness, we have hopefully a lesser steep learning curve to teach people what the technical aspects of zero trust are. And I think that's one of the key pieces that we'll be focusing on over the time. We're not gonna have that easy button that we talked about, but we also need to make sure that our leadership and our workforce understand what are, what's gonna be put in place with the multi-factor authentication, with uh, the micro-segmentation, with all of the different pieces that we've talked about, more restrictive access. So someone may not have access to data that they had access to before because they don't really have a need to know. So that cultural and education piece is really gonna be key and it's gonna be ongoing. So I think that's one of the activities that CBP and especially me will be working on over the next several years. Right, I think anytime you uh, you start to go in there and uh, uh, let's talk about you know, sort of cleaning up the privilege access, uh, that creates a lot of uh, commotion, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important that people understand that no, look, this is all part of the framework, it's a journey. If you need access to something, you're gonna get access to it. But I would imagine that could have been a, a bit of a challenge. Uh, when you first implemented it. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum on the Federal News Network. With remote work becoming more widespread, traditional practices for protecting identity have proven inadequate. The time is right for government agencies to explore zero trust. Zero trust assumes that traffic inside the network is as likely to be as malicious as traffic outside the network. To protect your network and data, you need advanced automated tools that adhere to the principles of zero trust. Quest Public Sector has the end-to-end -end solutions you need to implement zero trust in your agency. Learn more at questpublicsector.com. Veeam Government Solutions, the leader in data backup, provides highly secure data protection solutions to keep the U.S. federal government running. Agencies trust VGS to protect and manage data, workloads, and applications, no matter where they reside. And over 1,200 government customers know that VGS is a simple, flexible, reliable solution that scales to the cloud with no vendor lock-in. Visit veeamgov.com to learn how VGS can modernize your data protection strategy. That's veeamgov.com. Recent global events have demonstrated urgency for advancing digital transformation and modernizing cybersecurity strategies. While threats continue to increase and skill gaps grow, leaders are tasked with navigating these challenges while complying with government mandates and timelines. IBM can help accelerate zero-trust plans, enhance cybersecurity, and better manage complexity. IBM cybersecurity solutions protect data across the hybrid cloud, secure remote users, and better address risk and compliance. For more information on IBM cybersecurity solutions, go to dlt.com slash government dash product slash IBM. Welcome back to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. We're talking about zero trust architectures, and we're specifically talking about priorities. And I'm going to throw it over to you, Jeff, to talk about uh, top priorities with Veeam. Absolutely. So I've mentioned a resiliency of data protection, resiliency of backups a couple of times already. So I won't focus on that. Frankly, that is and has been one of our top priorities when we speak with agencies and commands that we work with in the federal government. 
just because it's absolutely necessary. But I want to riff off a couple of things that Akiba and Scott said earlier. Scott mentioned that uh, CBP is going to be bringing on board uh, a chief data officer and that one of the big challenges around zero trust is actually knowing what data you have and making sure that, that you actually are aware of what the resources are and what the vulnerabilities are. One of Veeam government solutions priorities with our customers is letting them leverage backups sort of at a technical level for doing some of that data classification to sort of offload the burden from the production network. And so we're continuing sort of technically to invest in ways that folks can actually find out what their data estate looks like, where they've got PII, where they've got information that might need a higher level of securing. Uh, so that's our second priority after super resiliency for backups, things like air gapping and immutability. And the third, um, I'll, just, I'll just point to something that Akiba said, we continually find that alignment between the mission leadership and financial leadership in an agency and technical and security leadership is not what it could be. In the backup and, and uh, data recovery space, we've seen this for years when we've tried to do with private sector and public sector customers, you know, the business impact analysis, what do I need to get running after a disaster when, what really matters to the mission? But we see a lack of alignment as well on the security side. And actually, you put some data behind that. In the most recent uh, data protection trend survey that we did, we asked IT and security leadership, and then we asked um, business leadership how well the mission was aligned, if there needed to be a, a significant overhaul, total overhaul, or everything was fine. And 52% said that there needed to be a, either a significant or a total overhaul in the way that their organizations were aligned to get secure around what they were doing with their data. So when, when I hear that, I know that we've got some educating to do, and, and we're spending a lot of time talking with organizations about that. Wow, uh, interesting statistics there. Bo, yeah, top priorities for you at the Census Bureau? There's a, there's a sense of urgency at Census, and the reason for that is we only have a few years here up until the middle of the decade before the 2030 Census takes over and the entire agency pivots toward that priority. And, sure. and that's always a national priority. So that's the right pivot when that happens. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, we've really got to work hard to reinvent ourselves um, before that happens, before that pivot occurs. And so what we're doing is trying to consolidate IT. Like many organizations, we're trying to consolidate our IT. We have a portfolio of information collection instruments, as you can imagine, um, and then dissemination in, in, uh, uh, instruments. And so, you know, we collect data, we process data, and then we distribute data. That's really what we do at the Census Bureau. Mm -hmm. uh, in the back end, we have a data lake. And so that's where we're really focusing, like Jeff said, and Scott said, we're really focusing on that data as the most valuable asset at the Census Bureau. And, and of course, maintaining the public's uh, trust in us is always a top priority for us at the Census Bureau. So we know we have to get this right. Uh, in this age of privacy consciousness that we're experiencing as a society, right? So, um, so we're working hard to really make sure that this data lake is as robust as we've talked about here today, that we do have the zero trust principles and policies ahead of that. We just had a demo earlier this week where, um, where we were showing staff zero trust capabilities of one of our collection instruments. And one of the aha moments that the audience had was when the team demonstrated that even with an admin account, you were subject to that policy, right? That zero trust policy, even an admin could not circumvent that policy. So what that did was show people that 
We've got RBAC, role-based access control, and RBAC will be here for a while, but Zero Trust uses a different model. It's an attribute-based access control approach. And so we're seeing a merge of those two now. You can have your role as an admin, but you're still subject to that policy and those specific attributes identified in that policy to restrict it. And that's why it's so powerful and so flexible, right? Combining those things together. So I think over time, we'll see ABAC sort of fill more of the space. And so RBAC is less and less um, relevant. And so that's that's kind of, that's what we're prioritizing now. Sure. And an interesting nuance there. And I would imagine that uh, with this tectonic shift in technology, you know, 50 years ago, you, you did the census uh, activity the same way every every, every 10 years. Now, uh, I would imagine each 10 years, uh, there's such a shift in technology that there's a lot of redressing going as far as uh, how one would approach that. So interesting concept there. Chris, how about a Quest software? Top priority. Our top priority, quite frankly, is moving our customers, our agencies from a siloed approach to security and trust to a unified strategy or deployment. And what I mean by that is, you know, just as um, you know, you were just talking about you know, hiring and bringing on chief data officers, quite frankly, to figure out exactly what data is an organization, that is a very large silo within every organization. So if you think about it, we have users with their own set of permissions and priorities and objectives. You have nodes that they use or devices, you know, you know, small, you know, central edge devices. And then you have the data and then you have applications and today each one of those represents a different silent organization and we can go even more granular than that so there's access management in each one of those sometimes we do privilege management or privilege sessions in each one of those for instance so and then you have to do governance and if if all those things are siloed that is if you have one governance and access and authorization mechanism for your data and a separate one for your users and yet another one for applications to get access to a firewall, for instance, or to move across segments in the network, then that type of siloed architecture makes it almost near to impossible to really do zero trust the way it's been envisioned. So our goal as an organization really is to move our customers from a siloed approach to a more unified approach where it is more about the policy around you, not just as, you know, as, as, as Bo was saying around RBAC, it is now really around policy. Who are you? Where are you in the organization? What do you do, for instance? And then also think about identity attributes that make us unique, for instance. So um, I love my iPhone. Uh, I also have an Android phone, but iPhone gives me really good facial recognition, for instance. So it doesn't remove the password. It obfuscates the password, for instance, with another identity mechanism. Same thing with biometrics. But you can only do those things once you unify those silos within an organization and bring all that credentialing, so to speak, all that authorization activity into a central model, for instance, so you can actually literally now look down at your kingdom, so to speak, and try to understand exactly where data is flowing, where applications are moving and how applications are moving data and how users are executing on a mission, for instance. But you can only get there once you have a unified strategy where identity is central to that and critical to that and actually make the mission work for all your organizations internally. Unified strategy, very, very important here. Uh, well, we're going to wrap it up with a uh, uh, our last question. But before we do, I can't resist, Bo, top lesson learned for you. Um, it's really uh, about communication and education for staff. Even our senior level network experts and, and developers, they struggled with these concepts. So I can't over, overstate en uh, enough the, the necessity to really, really talk. We had some spirited debates at the Census Bureau with senior level folks, and we really had to kind of work through that. 
uh, to get to an understanding and, and we're getting there. We're still got some loose ends to kind of clean up, but I think generally folks are now understanding the concepts of zero trust and really how powerful and flexible it is for us uh, versus something called zero trust that seems very rigid on the surface. It's not, it's extremely flexible, but very sophisticated in that, in that uh, flexibility. So that, that's what I would say. Scott, you all have been on a, a journey there, early adopters, top lesson learned that you'd like to share with the audience. Well, we were pretty fortunate we had started early. So that's one of the things if folks have not started, which in the federal space, I would be surprised, mm -hmm. but start if you haven't already. And then the next thing would be do a gap analysis, figure out what you already have in place so that you understand what needs to be put in place as soon as possible, and then start justifying for uh, additional resources. Uh, top level uh, senior uh, CBP has been supportive of cybersecurity. Uh, the entire time that I've been with the two plus years that I've been with CBP had nothing but support for cybersecurity. Of course, zero trust is more than just cyber, but that's that's the high priority that I would say. Start early and then get that gap analysis done and then start working towards those projects. Got it. Akiva, let's talk about uh, two to three years from now. You're at the, uh, you're doing a lot of this analysis. You've done these various uh, reports, et cetera. Paint a picture for two to three years from now. Uh, what, what's it gonna look like? Sure, I'm gonna go a little further for you too, Luke. Um, I think certainly over the next couple of years, I think, you know, everything we've actually already talked about today needs to continue to be done. It's not done. It's all still part of what's going to continue to transpire over the, the next two to three years. The execution on the prioritization of the gap analysis, the education, the alignment on the, the mission side, all of those things going to continue. I see a lot on automation. So I think there is a lot of focus on how do you automate a lot mm -hmm. of things across on the data side and data security, data discovery, data classification, everything across all of the technology pillars to remove more and more of the manual out of the process. So I see a big focus on that. Um, I would be remiss if I did not um, talk further than that and talk a little bit about quantum being here from IBM. <laughs> um, one of the things that happened over the summer is NIST and the working group actually um, chose a set of standards for cryptography, quantum safe cryptography, um, protocols that will begin to be implemented. And I'm starting to hear dates of 2027, 2030, where we'll start mm -hmm. to see, um, the, you know, there's generally an assumption of, you know, the, the, the um, levels of um, uh, password protections and, and algorithms that we have in place today will begin to break and that we are going to move towards these types of more highly sophisticated cryptography and algorithms. We welcomed President Biden on October 6th to our quantum computing um, biggest data center in, uh, in uh, Poughkeepsie. To talk about um, to talk about this topic and its evolution, and I think we are we are even at the very beginning. Even as much as we've been very heavy in the research side, we are just beginning to have the conversations about how that gets commercialized into technologies and into consulting, you know, capabilities. Um, and it's been become a real topic in the federal space. Um, it is probably the most requested topic I am getting lately because people are trying to understand what it's about and how it applies, even though the reality of its implementation is quite far down the road. So that's definitely looking further into yep. the crystal ball, but a lot of meetings happening on that topic right now. And we uh, we love the uh, the focus on that as well. Chris, how about over at Quest? What's yeah. it look like in a couple of years? You know, it's like I got chills when I was listening to Akiva about quantum in the future. And I had a personal experience this week. I was trying to get access to um, data, personal data that for a company and account that I had long forgotten. And they gave me two options. One, I could try to verify and provide some basic information and they would mail me a letter to my last address known to them. 
with wow. a code that I would then basically enter in the system, basically snail mail two-factor authentication. It freaked, I was like, there's no way I'm doing this. The other option was to try to identify in real time based on information that they had on me. And I was like, okay, let's mm -hmm. try this out. And they said, quote, we're gonna use LexisNexis systems. And I was like, okay, that's a good hint. So of course, what they had done was they had crawled credit reports and public information files about data about me, people I knew, my family. And it was fascinating to know what they knew about me. Chilling, but fascinating, okay? So the nerd in me kept going, I was like, well, what if I answer this, what I like? So it, there's uniqueness about us that is in the public sphere, public domain that we have no control over. And so when Akiva was talking about quantum and our cryptographic system start to break, what do we do, quite frankly? And what, what I've heard scientists and leading thought leaders around this topic start to come to is that the most unique thing we still have as creatures or living beings is our DNA. And I know no one wants to think about it, but at some point, we're going to have to have something so unique that even a machine cannot impersonate it. And that's where we're at right now. A machine can find out everything about me right now that's in the public sphere and impersonate me and pretty much do anything. But my DNA, that literal fluid and whatever I'm made out of, quite frankly, or the dust, as Neil deGrasse Tyson would say, is the most unique thing about us as, as individuals. So I know it's not happening today. I'm still comfortable with um, a directory service. I'm comfortable with multi-factor authentication, my face ID. I'm comfortable with that right now. But I think in the next decade, quite frankly, we're going to get to a point where we're going to need stronger authentication mechanisms and a stronger way to identify and prove literally who we are. Because every sci-fi movie is pointing to this. And I'm not going to go there, total nerd. But that's the thing that concerns me. But the future is coming. And for us as an identity-focused company, um, you're right. We're going to have to start figuring out exactly how do we deal with not just quantum, but machine learning. Um, when people turn on right now, they're usually the, the ransomware is not just ransomware. It often has uses cryptographic engines, basically, and they'll have peer to peer networking to push those botnets and push processing across the, across the globe to crack networks and crack credentials. So it's getting more and more challenging. At some point, we're going to have to get to the point where, you know what, the only way to prove who you are, basically, is can I see your DNA, sir? And that is the future, I'm afraid of. of Ladies and gentlemen, they can't take away our DNA. All right, Jeff, how about Ed Veeam? Tell so, us about uh, what it's going to look like two to three years from now. And, 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 and please don't try to top those last two. I wouldn't dream of it. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to go for, uh, for DNA authentication. I think, I think Chris hit the ball out of the park with that. Security conversations tend to be gloomy by their nature. We talk about exploits. We talk about how organizations have been victimized. Um, so let me offer a counter to the usual gloom of this kind of conversation. I think in two or three years now around data resiliency, around security for data protection, agencies across the government, commands across the US military are going to be on a much, much more resilient footing than they are right now. The technical tools to make sure that data stays safe, even if the worst happens and you, you know, an attack is detonated are already there and they will continue to evolve from all the players in this space on the technical level. Um, so, so let's talk about a success story. At the RSA conference back in June, there was a fascinating panel discussion um, about the Russian attack on Ukraine. And in the hours before the actual attack back in February happened, there was a, uh, a malware cyber attack versus the Biosat network that Ukraine depends on very heavily for both civilian and for military communications. The interesting thing about this, and I actually read about the conversation in the register, was that the headline was that Ukraine's secret cyber weapon was resilient backups. They're so used to being attacked that they have protected their backups in such a way that a, a, an attack designed to wipe out their command and control infrastructure was just a, meh, okay, another attack, let's restore from backups and we're back up and running. 
And I am actually optimistic that we're going to see resiliency of that sort across the federal government and across our, you know, the governments of our allies take big, big steps forward. I, I think we're on the right path in that respect and that the tools will continue to evolve and help us get more resilient. Resiliency being a really key part of that. Uh, the Londoners uh, taught us that years ago during the bombings, right? I mean, they just, uh, you know, right, pick themselves up and keep on going. Bo, what's it going to look like in a couple of years? You're, you'll be right in the thick of preparing for the, the next census. What can we yeah. expect to see two to three years from now? Uh, I, I'm I'm impressed with industry's um, speed and resilience, as Jeff just indicated. And I think now federal agencies realize just how mature uh, cloud services are, for example, and, and how protected they are, necessarily so, right? Because these companies uh, would not be in business otherwise. So they're really getting it right. And so I do see a trend of continuing to go to cloud services uh, and really going up that stack of technology, um, not, not treating the cloud like a data center, because that's the most expensive version of cloud that, that you can imagine, but really went up that cloud and using platform and, and software as a service to the greatest extent possible. And so I think that trend is going to make it much easier on federal agencies to manage IT in a way that maximizes the business, right? At Census, we're in the data business. We're not in the IT business. And so the more we can focus on our core mission, I think the better. And I think these trends of technology moving to the cloud and, and really maximizing service providers and the cloud um, will continue. Uh, very good catch on that uh, cloud, uh, not just becoming the next data center. Uh, Scott, if I'm a freshly minted Border Patrol agent coming out of the academy, you know, they hand me a gun, they hand me a uh, a badge, and uh, what are they going to hand me an iPad and say, go get them? How's this going <laughs> to, what can we expect to see two to three years from now? Well, we are working on some of those technologies where we're going to lessen the burden on our Border Patrol agents and other field operations folks, Air Marine Port, port uh, folks. Uh, one of the things that I will say is zero trust can become a buzzword. Um, I look at zero trust as a lot of its technology modernization. And so we have legacy applications, we have legacy technology. And in the next couple of years, that's one of the things that I hope we're focusing on. I know we are in some cases with our application modernization, whether it's going to the cloud, uh, shifting things, basically getting it so they can use uh, SAML or multi-factor authentication technology. But over the next couple of years, we also need to look at the operational technology. You mentioned a border patrol agent. Right. We have sensors, we have body cameras, we have radios, we have airframes, boats, just about anything can connect to a network, whether it's CBP's network or just the internet. Having an understanding of what that operational technology is, we don't want to leave that out. If we do, we risk vulnerability and then potential breach. I know we kept talking about assume breach, but that's an area of focus over the next couple of years that we're going to be touching on within CBP. So make sure that we don't leave ourselves blind to that whole as a large, large scope of technology. We don't want to leave that out either. No question, tens of thousands of IoT devices out there. Well, listen, I want to thank all of you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us on this program and fighting the good fight every single day to keep this country safe. I'd like to thank our sponsors for supporting us on this show. I'd like to thank the good people here at Federal News Network that make this program so successful and enjoyable. And most of all, I'd like to thank you, the listening audience, that tune in every month. You've been listening to the Federal Executive Forum part of the Federal News Network. Thank you for listening to the Federal Executive Forum Series on Federal News Network. This show was produced by Treza Media Group. 
If you missed any portion of this show, you can listen to the show in its entirety and on demand at federalnewsnetwork.com.